John chapter 6, beginning at verse 60 through 63. John 6, 60 through 63, I will be reading from the New King James Version. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit, and they are life. Well, good morning. Hope everybody is doing well this morning. I want to ask you very quickly before we get into our study. I wonder if anyone here has ever really wanted something before very badly. Maybe think when you were a child or maybe think now for a lot of our high schoolers, maybe you're just so ready to get out of high school, maybe. Or for our college students, you're so ready maybe to get at least out of college for the break. Maybe not all together, but you're ready at this point already to be done. I wonder if we've ever really wanted something. We've thought we've wanted something so badly before, and maybe we work really hard to earn it. Maybe as a, a kid, it's like that toy or that item that you wanted, uh, or maybe it's that next life stage that you really wanted, and you finally got there. You had finally invested enough money to buy the object, or maybe you had finally invested enough time to move into that next stage, and you get there. And it's not exactly what you thought it would be. When we buy things and we feel this way, we call it buyer's remorse. We take it home and we open it up and we think, ah, I probably could have spent my money on something better. Maybe this isn't exactly what I should have bought. That feeling that we get when we're disappointed in something that's not quite as good as we thought it would be is, has been called disillusion. And I'll give you a really good example. Uh, yesterday, uh, Jason Isbell and I went to the Thrive Weekend uh, youth event over in Peachtree City, and we got to visit with some of our students as well as some others. Now, here's what Jason thought he wanted. He thought he wanted me to ride with him so he could have some peace and quiet in the car to go over his lesson before we get there. And I'm sure it was probably about the time we hit Auburn, he realized he had not gotten what he had signed on for. I liked to talk, and the poor man was stuck inside a very small box with me for about four hours there and back, and uh, talked both of his ears off on the way there and back. That feeling where you think you really need this or want this, and you get in that moment, and then maybe a few minutes in, this isn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. Maybe we're a little disappointed in something we thought would be much better. I was very grateful uh, to Leon Willis gave me a book a few months ago. It's by a man named Phil Sanders. It's called The Evangelism, The Personal Evangelism Handbook. And I was shocked just on the first few pages he makes this claim. He says nearly half, half of new Christians fall away from their faith within 12 months. Half of new Christians lose their faith within 12 months. Something Something is happening that is causing the newest members of our faith community to become disillusioned with their faith. Maybe they've spent years planning, they've spent years studying, they've spent years looking forward maybe to this moment. Maybe they've had a lot of questions, a lot of things to chew on before they made this decision. But something's happening to nearly half 
of all new converts to where maybe it's not the faith that they are involved in is not exactly what they thought it was going to be. Maybe it's not, it hasn't solved as many problems as they thought that it would have. Maybe it's not quite as easy as they thought it was going to be. Maybe their fellow Christians aren't quite as kind to them as they thought they were going to be. But whatever it is, I think that stat is staggering to say the least. And I think it's a little bit of, at least for me, a gut check for the church. After all, we are called to restore one another in a spirit of gentleness, aren't we? From Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1. We're also called to encourage one another as long as it's called today from Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. So the question I think we have to ask, or we have to ask several different questions. If half of our new Christians are leaving within 12 months, why are they doing that? What is it that we as a church can be doing to help those people? And what is it that maybe when, if we're thinking about coming to Christ ourselves, what questions do we need to ask maybe before we commit in order to avoid some of this disillusion. Now, I know there's a lot of problems we could examine this morning. Certainly, you might think of the Galatians, where Paul writes to them and he says, I'm surprised that you have so quickly left the gospel that I've preached to you. And it's probably just a matter of a few months that they've drifted away due to false teaching. So I know there's a lot of different reasons we could look at this morning. I'm not going to stand up here and claim and say, these are the only reasons somebody might leave within 12 months. But I do have at least three at least three reasons why a person, biblical examples, and we'll start in the parable of the sower, if you want to turn over there. We have at least three biblical examples of why a person might leave the faith soon after coming to the faith. And by looking at that, I think we can learn some very valuable lessons about how we can help a person stay in the faith and encourage them for a lifelong walk with Christ, not just a 12-month-long walk with him. So let's take a look over in Matthew 13. And just for a little background, I'm going to go ahead and read the parable beginning in verse 3. Jesus told them many things in parables. He said this, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell among, fell among the path, and birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on the rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they did not have much depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on the good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. And when you get to verse 18, Jesus is going to explain this parable, if you want to look at that and skim over it as we continue to move forward in our study. But what's so interesting to me about this parable is the point of the sower and what the sower is trying to do. And we'll get to that in just a second. But take a look at what happens to the seed. You have three categories of soil or three categories of the seed that actually germinate, right? It doesn't say explicitly that the seed among the thorns germinates, but we know that thorns don't grow overnight, as we'll talk about in a moment. So you could certainly argue that those seeds germinate as well. It's interesting. You have three categories of seeds that actually germinate. The seed is able to grow. The, seed, the soil takes the seed and it, it starts to grow. But the point is still not reached for the sower. Only one of those groups proves to be fruitful. So my question is, what happens to the other two groups of soil? What happens to these other two groups of hearers of the gospel? We have three groups of people, all who hear the gospel and accept 
the gospel. And even in the first case, you see they immediately, they're filled with joy and they immediately accept the gospel. Yet they don't wind up being fruitful for the Lord. So what happened? What happens to these other two groups here in the parable of the sower? Let's start with the the group that we can identify as those with scorched faith. The ones with little root. And I think that it's here we need to recognize two very important things. The first of which is that hearing the word immediately and receiving it is not an illegitimate form of receiving the gospel, right? And I'm indebted to our four-hour-long discussion with uh, Mr. Isbell here for bringing some of this to my mind. I'm really glad we had that conversation because now this makes a lot more sense. So thank you, Jason. But just because we come to the faith very quickly doesn't mean that our faith is too shallow to be legitimate, right? The seed actually does germinate here. It's not an illegitimate plant that is growing. It's a, it's a real plant. It doesn't have the chance to grow the roots. But the conversion, for the sake of the illustration, the conversion to Christ, the acceptance of the gospel is very real here. And surely we read passages like Acts chapter 2 and we see that 3,000 3,000 people upon hearing the gospel and on hearing, they have, their hearts are touched. And on hearing what they must do, you have 3,000 people who immediately, notice the use of that word here, they immediately receive the gospel when Jesus is explaining the parable to you later in the chapter. He says, these are the people who immediately, immediately take the gospel. And certainly we have reason to immediately receive the gospel, right? Oh, think of the peace that we have in Christ. Think of the joy that comes in eternal life. Think of the promises that come. Think of the the very fact of eternal life itself. Certainly we have reason to come to Christ immediately. But I think the temptation is for those of us who are sowing the seed. The temptation is for us to see the plant spring up immediately and assume the work is done. And say, well, the plant has already grown, and after all, our goal here was to get the seed to germinate. Our goal was to get someone to accept the gospel and to convert to Christ. And since they have put on Christ in baptism, the seed has germinated, our job is done. After all, we've been called to baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, right? From Matthew chapter 28. Well, our our job is done. The goal is accomplished. They've been Converted, They have been baptized, but an important distinction needs to be made here that we alluded to a moment ago. Let me ask you this. What do you think the point of the sower's work in the parable is? What's the point of his work? There's only one group that does what the sower is looking for. And what is it that that group does? They're bearing fruit. You see, the goal of the sower is not just to have the seed germinate. Certainly, you can't have the fruit without the seed germinating to begin with. But there's a very important distinction to make here, and that is that the goal of the sower is not just to get a seed to pop up out of the ground as a little plant. The goal is for that plant to eventually produce fruit. It is fruit that is the goal of the sower here. The Lord is looking for us to bear fruit. He's not just looking for pretty little plants in a pot. He is looking for us to bear fruit. The case of our faith is not so different from the parable of the sower here. Let's consider Matthew chapter 28, if you want to turn over there. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19, we have exactly this great commission that we spend so much time discussing. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Go and make disciples. Well, how do we make disciples? What are we doing as we make disciples? Baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, that I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. So Jesus says our goal is bigger than just getting the seed to germinate. And I don't mean to... I don't mean to deny the importance of the seed germinating when I say our goal is not just for baptism. Our goal is not just for that moment of conversion. Our goal is not just for the wedding. It's not just to have a great wedding. It's to encourage someone to have an enriching, fulfilling life of marriage, not just a great wedding ceremony. I don't mean to disparage the wedding ceremony. I don't mean to disparage the moment in which the seed germinates, but I do think we need to... Consider the importance of that moment in terms of the bigger picture. Jesus says, yes, we are called to baptize people in the name and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We're called to teach them. Both of those things fall under the idea of making disciples. What do disciples look like? To continue the analogy, let's look in John chapter 15 and verse 8. And let's give a little bit of context here. Jesus is likely sitting in the upper room with his disciples at the Last Supper that we talked about a moment ago. Jesus is essentially preparing them for his departure. He's telling them he's going to leave them the helper in chapter 14. And when we get to chapter 15, beginning in the chapter, verses 1 through 5, he's making this point to them. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Now, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from the vine, the branches cannot grow, and they cannot, guess what? Produce fruit. In verse 8, we have a very interesting phrase by Jesus. He says, by this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. You see, discipleship is much more than just the beginning of the story, right? Just as a lifelong commitment in marriage is much more than just the wedding ceremony. It's about the commitment that is made in the ceremony, right? It's about fulfilling that commitment out for the rest of your days, as long as the two of you shall live. For another example, let's go over to Matthew chapter 7. You can look in verses 15 through 20. What is it that Jesus says about how you can identify certain teachers of the truth. He says, every good tree bears, guess what kind of fruit? Good fruit. Every diseased tree, for all practical purposes, does not. A diseased tree cannot bear good fruit, neither can a healthy tree bear bad fruit. Thus, he says, you will recognize them by their fruits. Certainly, The germination of the seed is the beginning of this. And it is extremely important. But in the parable of the sower, we do learn about the distinction here between the germination and then the life of the plant afterward. Looking forward to bearing fruit. So how is it that as we looked at the stat a moment ago, if we have nearly half of people who accept the gospel who are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. They have made that commitment. They have gone through the wedding ceremony. What is it that within 12 months could lead a person to fall away? It's interesting 
that this first category, to go back to our first group here, this first category where the seed germinates but they, they die off, it says they immediately receive the word with joy. But look at the term it uses of them when trials come their way. How quickly do they fall away? It says immediately again. They immediately receive the word, but when a tribulation or a trial or a persecution on account of the word comes their way, immediately they turn away. I think we have a few things to observe here before we move on to the next group. First of all, if someone comes to faith quickly, we do not need to start patting ourselves on the back for our great gardening skills. If the, surge, if the seed germinates quickly, that's not the time to prop our feet up and think that we're done with our work in the garden. In fact, we need to be more on the alert to be ready to water the plant. Drawing on the metaphor that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, speaking of himself as planting the seed and Apollos as watering the seed, as continuing to take care of the Christians once they have converted. We need to be mindful, especially when a person comes to faith quickly as the community of the church, to be there to encourage and to admonish and to teach our new brothers and sisters in Christ how to be equipped to handle the things that might be headed their way, how to be equipped to handle those hot sunny days that will threaten to scorch their faith if they do not take the time to let their faith take root. And if we ourselves have come to faith quickly, we need to be aware that it is most likely that a very sunny hot day is coming, maybe even soon, and that we need to feel a sense of urgency to continue to grow in our faith, not to be complacent, not to sit back and prop our feet up because of the commitments that we have made, but to the contrary, to live a life of excited, loving obedience to God because of what He has done for us, because of the commitment that we have decided to make. Either way, I would argue that the best tools in the fight against a scorched faith can be seen in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14. As a church community, how can we help? 1 Thessalonians 5, 14, Paul says this, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Paul is not writing here of just prospective converts. He's not writing here of just the people that you might be studying with or the people that you might be trying to bring to Christ. He's talking largely about people who already have committed their lives to Christ. But notice that Paul is not telling them to hang up the gardening tools and think their job is done. Instead, he says, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. And we'll quickly run through these last two categories here. In the parable of the sower, you also see a group who are choked out by the cares and the worries of this world that you can read in Matthew 13 and verse 22. These are those who fall away due to a, they slowly fade away from their commitment in Christ. It's not as an exaggerated, quick turn from the gospel as the first group. It's a slow, gradual progression that turns a person away from faith. If you've ever had a garden, it might seem like weeds pop up overnight. But I think we all know that that doesn't exactly happen. Now, granted, a weed might actually grow out of the ground very, in a very small way overnight. But generally speaking, you're not going to go to bed one night and wake up the next morning and find that your garden is overrun by weeds. Weeds grow over time, and a lot of times they will grow without 
your notice. A lot of times, maybe, I know Kana and I had a garden back in Leeds when we lived in Birmingham. And every now and then, uh, during breakfast, I might glance out the window to see if there are any weeds and I didn't see any. Go to work. Maybe it's at the end of the week, I glance out the window and you can't even see (laughs) the tomato plants anymore because there's so many weeds out there. And I'm thinking, where did these come from? How did they so quickly rise up? How did they so quickly take over all the plants in our garden? Well, if I've been paying more careful attention... Certainly, I would have noticed. And it's a lot easier to pull weeds for about five minutes every other morning than it is to block off an entire Saturday to pull all the weeds that have been growing for weeks that you should have pulled earlier. So I think in our spiritual lives, we need to be checking the garden for weeds daily. We need to see if these weeds are growing around our faith, the faith of our children, And also the faith of our new brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't need to spend much time talking about how easily it is for Americans to be distracted by something. For Americans to be choked out by the worries of our careers, the worries of our finances, for our students, the worries that are involved in school with your academics and otherwise. There are so many things that can very easily creep up and before we know it we turn around and the garden is overrun. With weeds, only constant diligence will help us win the battle here. And let's move to the third category. This one is from John chapter 6. That was read about a moment ago. John chapter 6 has always been very interesting to me. Not only because of what Jesus teaches here, but because of what the crowds do. You'll notice in the beginning of the chapter, you've got Jesus feeding 5,000 people. They come to hear Jesus speak, they're hungry, and they they witness a miraculous event where they all get their stomachs filled. Jesus crosses over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The next day, the crowd follows him. And it's very interesting what Jesus does, and this would be a whole separate lesson altogether. But it's interesting what Jesus says to these people. For all intents and purposes, he says to them, Did you come here for... Did you come here for the things that are really meaningful? Did you come here for the teachings? Or did you come here for more food? And he's going to go on to give them some very difficult teachings. He's going to teach them largely about what we just participated in a moment ago. He's going to tell them, if you don't eat my flesh, and if you don't drink my blood... You have no part in me. You have no part in my father. Now for us, this is much easier to look back and understand, well, he's probably alluding to what he's about to do in his sacrifice and maybe even alluding to what he's going to say in the upper room about the Lord's Supper. But I want you to imagine being in that crowd, if you can. I want you to try to imagine a person telling you that you're literally going to have to take a bite out of their body And you're going to have to drink from their blood if you want part in the kingdom or if you want a part of God, if you want a part in his people. That's a hard teaching to hear. And what we find is when the crowd runs up to that hard teaching of Christ, when they're hit with the hard teaching of Christ, where do they go? They leave. You have a group of people just over the course of 24 hours here. We're not talking about 12 months. We're talking 24 hours. 
If you look in, in the episode uh, at the very end of the first part of the chapter, in the episode where they, he feeds them, he feeds the crowd, look at what they try to do and why Jesus leaves the crowd. Jesus leaves the crowd because the people are so excited about Jesus. They're so excited about following him. They want to make him king. And they're saying out loud that he is the Messiah. So you have at one point in, in a 24-hour period, these people are wanting to take Jesus by force and make him their king. 24 hours later, they're walking away disappointed. 24 hours later, they're disillusioned with the one they thought was the Christ. You know, Jesus' further response to the disciples who remain in verse 66 was very interesting to me. Many of the disciples turn back and no longer walk with him. So Jesus turns to the twelve and says, hey guys, let me explain. You guys don't leave as well. Hey guys, let me make this easier for you to digest. Hey guys, let me, let me tell you some more about grace and love. He says to them, do you want to leave too? Are you disappointed as well? And I love Peter's response. Where am I going to go? Where else can I go? You alone have the words of life. The crowd here wanted the loaves and fishes from Jesus, but they did not want the bread of life. And I wonder what teachings of Jesus for us serve as those bread of life kinds of teachings. That's a question that no one can answer for you. You have to answer yourself. Where is Jesus calling you to follow where you might not be predisposed to go? What is Jesus calling you to do that you might not be predisposed to do on your own? Just like the crowds here in John 6, you have the free will to walk away. But before you do, consider those words of Peter. If you leave Jesus... Where else can you go? Who else has the eternal life? So if you're here this morning and you've started to turn away from Christ, whether that's due to shallow roots, whether that's due to distraction, or whether that's due to hesitation to accept some of the difficult teachings of Christ, you must consider where it is that you are headed as you turn away from Christ. If you're headed away from the words of life, if you're headed away from Jesus himself, we have to ask, well, where is it that I am going? If you've turned away from Christ, I can't think of any good reason not to turn back right now. I can't think of any good reason not to turn back now and to allow the church to encourage you. I can't think of any reason to... to, Not to turn towards Christ this morning if you have not yet. If you have not let that seed germinate. If you have not accepted the gospel. If you have not allowed Jesus to wash your sins away in the waters of baptism. Then there's water here behind me. What's keeping you from making that decision today? If you've turned away, please turn towards him now as we sing together.